some of those things that you see in there, you, you look at and you go, you know, I think I could do that. And I have no artistic skills whatsoever. And you sometimes wonder how these people get termed artists. Well, there's a certain art exhibit. It started in the 1980s, out, out east. That has a very strange exhibit. It's a chair. And attached to that chair is a shotgun. And the shotgun faces straight up into the face of the person sitting in the chair, if, if you would sit there. That shotgun is loaded. And that shotgun is on a timer. Sometime in the next 100 years, that shotgun is going to go off according to that timer. And people flocked to see this exhibit. Not only did they flock to see the exhibit, what do you think they stood in line to do? Sit in the chair for a minute. And so they would, one by one, sit in the chair, stare into the face of the shotgun, taking the chance that it wouldn't happen to them during their minute. How many would take that chance? Just for the risk, the, the thrill. All of you are smart and wise people. Wait, I see one little hand back there. Okay. You think that's foolish to sit there? That's the same attitude that we have when we entertain evil temptations and proceed toward evil, we think we see this temptation and we go towards it and we embrace the sin to do the sin and we're saying the same thing. I don't think there's going to be a penalty for me. I don't think the shotgun of God's going to go off on me. And so we engage in the sin. In Proverbs 27, verse 12, it addresses this kind of situation for us. A prudent man or a wise man, wise person, sees evil and hides himself. The naive or the simple proceed and pay the penalty. What I want to do are four things this morning. I want to look at just the plain teaching of that verse and make a couple statements about that verse. Secondly, to see how this verse is worked out in the life of Eve and Joseph in Genesis. Thirdly, to also consider what is Jesus' involvement concerning evil in our lives and this verse. And lastly, to make a couple brief applications. So first of all, consider this verse, verse 12. The wise person sees evil and hides himself. There's one thing you've got to notice in that verse. The wise person does see evil. They identify it. Okay, I'm presented with this temptation. I can define what's going on here. That is evil. I see it. There's something that God has prohibited. Wise people do that. Wise people do that because part of wisdom is fearing the Lord, isn't it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those two things go together. If you say about a person, well, that person is really wise, we're saying that person really fears the Lord. They're afraid to sin against God. And the Scriptures say that a lot in uh, Proverbs 3.7. It says, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. See, that's what wisdom does. Turns away from evil. Or in chapter 8, fear, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Okay, if I'm wise, I hate these kind of sins. I hate the sins I do. I hate the sins that other people do. Or in chapter 16, by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. So wisdom keeps us away from evil. And in this verse, we see that the wise person sees evil and hides. They get out of the situation. They remove themselves. They stop. They don't proceed like the simple person does. If you see friends gossiping and you're in the midst of the bunch there and you've seen that that's evil, you have some options. You can leave that group so that you don't join in. You can say, uh, can we change the subject? 
and stop the gossiping, or you can reprove them. See, that's being wise, seeing the evil, and hiding yourself from the evil. Get out of that. Or some of you young people, you have tests in school. You see a way to cheat. And you know you can get away with it. And you know your friends might even get away with it. But you see the way to cheat and you change your course and you say, no, I see that's evil, that's the wrong thing to do. I'm going to remove myself from the temptation. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take this little crib note into class with me. I'm not going to take the note that somebody else passed to me. I'm not going to look over on the other paper. You stop yourself. You hide from that evil. And you don't proceed. On the other side of the coin, there are those who go toward the evil. See the second part of that verse. The naive or the simple people. These are people who just don't get it. They don't get it. The simple people just keep going. Oh, well, there's a sin there, but they don't see that it's evil. They might see it as a temptation, but they don't see it as wrong. And they just walk right towards it. And they embrace it. And they do it. And when they do that, what do they get? They pay the penalty. It says. So you say, well, why do naive or simple people proceed toward a sin and then pay the penalty for it? It's because they don't see that there's a penalty in there. They don't see that there are consequences involved in the sin. That's why they're naive. They don't get it. If you do this, there are results. There are consequences for you. That's the difference between the wise person and the naive person. The wise person sees the end, the result. The simple person doesn't think there's any consequences. The rules for obeying God don't apply to them. Now, how many times have you taken that approach? We know some things, but we just think it's just not going to apply to me. There's a story that I read. This guy was a zookeeper, and he had a friend who had a pet raccoon. And this guy told his friend, now you know, at about two years, when the raccoon's two years old, the system changes, the chemistry changes, the glands change in a raccoon, and they can attack for no reason. And so you better get rid of that raccoon before it's two. The raccoon owner, Julie, said, that is not going to happen to me. Bandit, the raccoon bandit, and I'd get along really well. Bandit would never do that to me. He said, I'm telling you, it's a fact. Raccoons change. Thank you for the advice, but that's just not going to happen. When he met her later and found out that she had surgery, plastic surgery on her face, because one day her raccoon just went wild, turned on her and clawed up her face and she had to turn it into the wild. We say, why didn't she heed the advice? Because she didn't think it would happen to her. We do the same thing. We see evil, we go towards it and we figure, well, you know, I've done this before. I've sinned many times and haven't seen any results or consequences. I think I can do this again. And we play with the consequences of God. Why do we do that? Why do we keep going towards it even when we know there are consequences to sin? And it's because this. It's because sin deceives us, doesn't it? That's the nature of sin. It tricks us. Hebrews 3.13 says, Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Ephesians 5 says, Don't be deceived by empty words. Deuteronomy 11, God says, Beware lest you be deceived and you turn away to other gods. Deceit, trickery, is part of sin. I have a quiz, but I need a young person to take a quiz. But before you raise your hand to take this quiz, you have to have seen a cow. Okay? So, if you've seen a cow, you can take this two-question quiz. Who would like to take that for me? We're like, Melissa, you ready? Okay. You've seen a cow in Illinois. A real cow and a picture of a cow. Okay. How many legs does a cow have? Four. That's correct. Now, let's just say we call the tail of the cow a leg. 
Okay? Now, how many legs does a cow have? Five? That's the deceit of sin. We can call that tail a leg, but it doesn't change the fact that you still got four legs. No matter what you call the tail, I tricked you. That wasn't fair, because I knew the answer ahead of time. But that's what sin does. You can call something whatever you want. It doesn't change the fact that God's rules are the same for everybody. Let's give you an example of that. Let's turn to Genesis. I want to show you how that verse is worked out in the life of Eve and in the life of Joseph. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. One of these is going to be wise and hide themselves when they see evil. The other one is going to be naive and proceed and pay the penalty. Now, you know, in the Garden of Eden, God had given them instructions on what was going to be, what was uh, allowable in the Garden and what was not. And back in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, he tells Adam, the Lord God commanded man, saying, from any of From any tree in the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. So, Adam identifies this tree. There it is. That's the one. Okay, the fruit looks good. But that one right there, he knows which tree it is, I can't touch. It's very clear. There's nothing very complicated about this command at all. One tree, don't touch it. So, in, verse, in chapter 3, Satan comes along to try to make a deceitful pitch toward them. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, verse 1, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now Eve answers correctly. Eve said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said... You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Alright, so Eve's got it right so far. Eve knows, there's that tree. I know we don't touch it. Every, all of us know, all two of us, know what tree that is. And it's very clear. Even though Satan suggests, you know, come on, did he really say... Eve's got it right. Yes, that's the one. We can't do it. Okay, so now here comes the deceit. Satan says, in verse 4, The serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. See how he changed? Okay, you know the commandment, Eve, but do you really believe there are consequences in the commandment? That's what brought up the question. That's where the temptation was. Eve, Eve, there's, no, God is a good God. He's not going to kill you just from plucking fruit. From a tree? Come on. Is he really like that? It's not going to happen to you, Eve. Verse 5, Satan says, God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so Eve saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desirable to make her wise, and she took the fruit. Eve was naive. She looked at that and didn't believe there are any consequences. But as soon as she takes the fruit and she gives it to Adam and they both eat, what happens? The greatest transgression that's ever been committed. The whole human race is condemned to spiritual death because they didn't believe they would get the consequences. But they did get the consequences. Now God confronts them In chapter 3, verse 13, he says, What is this you have done? The woman says, what? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. See, he tricked me. He said I wouldn't die, but I did. We're spiritually dead. We're separated from you. He tricked me. And in verse 17, God addresses Adam. It says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat, Cursed are you, and all he goes through all the curses. So he says to Adam, because you were deceived, 
You listened to Eve who was deceived. You knew the commandment, Adam. Both, how could both people blow it on that? I mean, half, if half the human race at that point gets it wrong, you would think at least half of the human race at that, part, at that point could get it right. But they both were deceived. He said, you knew what the commandment was. Why did you do that? I mean, from what we can tell, that's the only commandment they had. One. I'm asking you to do, to not do one thing. You think about what we have. I mean, we have a book full of commandments and instructions, exhortations, and sometimes you even forget what, what some of them are. And you say, oh, I didn't know that was in the Bible. They had one thing that they had to not do. And they couldn't do it because of this, the deceitfulness of sin. Let's look at somebody who did it right. So Eve was naive and proceeded and they paid the penalty. But turn to Genesis chapter 39 and let's see how Joseph handles this, this verse. Joseph was in charge of a whole house of an important man named Potiphar. And so he ran everything in that household and the business associated with Potiphar. But in Potiphar's house was Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife wanted to be with Joseph rather than with her own husband. And so she kept tempting him. And in verse 7, we see that. It came about after these events that his master's wife, Joseph's master's wife, looked with desire at Joseph and said, Lie with me. So here's the temptation for Joseph. So what are you going to do? Do you see it as evil and hide? Or do you say, ah, I don't think there will be any consequences and go ahead. Joseph's response is this. Verse 8. He refused. Now notice, notice the first response. He didn't reason. He didn't think it through. His first response, refuse. I've seen this as evil. No. There's no discussion. There's no entertainment. It's immediate refusal. He refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. He's put all that he owns in my charge. There's no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? He does see. He identifies it, doesn't he? He identifies it as evil. And he also knows there's going to be consequences because he knows it's against the living God. And so he doesn't proceed. He's got it pegged. In fact, verse 12 um, says, One day, Potiphar's wife caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and he ran. Now, there's a literal... Interpretation of uh, the, the wise person sees evil and hides himself. He got out of there. He left the situation. But that's wisdom. Because he knew there would be results. Now, if he was naive, he might have said, Hey, well, Potiphar may never find out. Nothing may never happen to me. Maybe I'll do this. There was a uh, young boy, there's a story of a young boy who was up in the mountain area hiking through the mountains and he came upon a rattlesnake and the rattlesnake talked. And the rattlesnake said, I'm cold and I'm hungry. Can you get me out of here? And the boy's like, I don't want to touch you. You're a rattlesnake. He said, oh, please take me down into the valley Put me in your shirt. Keep me warm. Take me down into the valley so I can live. The boy said, no, I know. Rattlesnakes are not safe. I'm not going to pick you up. And the snake just kept tempting him, saying, please, I won't do anything to you. I promise. If you just put me in your shirt and take me down, I'll just slither away and everything will be good. Please have mercy on me. The little boy, thinking it over for a while, said, okay. He picked up the rattlesnake, put it in his shirt, carried it all the way down to the valley, put it on the ground in the grass, and stepped back. And suddenly, the snake coiled, struck, and bit the little boy. 
The little boy cried, Hey, you promised. What are you doing? The snake said, You knew what I was when you picked me up. You should have known. It's the same with sin, isn't it? You want to enter into sin? You're tempted to do the certain sin? You know what it is before you get into it. You know what sin is. Don't be fooled. And you know you're going to get bit by it eventually. Eventually you'll pay a penalty. Eventually you'll pay it. Don't be deceived by sin. Well, Eve does it wrong. Joseph does it right. But how does Jesus get involved in this situation, in your situations for sin? And when I thought through this, when I was reading some of these passages, I confess I was a little surprised at the activity of Jesus. It's not exactly what I expected in some instances. Let's turn to the Gospel of Luke and to see how Jesus gets involved in temptation of others and the temptations that Satan brings to him. In Luke chapter 4, I just want to read through what happens when Satan comes to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, and tries to deceive Jesus. How does Jesus handle that? I mean, when you read through the temptation of Jesus, sometimes don't you just think about Satan? Are you stupid? How do you think you're going to tempt the Son of God to do these things? He's perfect. I don't think Satan is stupid. I think that he is such a deceiver and believes so much in his deceit that he was even willing to work that, try to work that on the Son of God. Look in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now notice, the Spirit is leading him there. In fact, Matthew says, the Spirit led him in the wilderness to be tempted. So if you think he was going out there just to spend some time alone... That's not what it says. He was going out there for the purpose of being tempted. And verse 2, it says, For forty days while tempted by the devil. Now, sometimes we think that this is like three temptations of the devil happened in a minute or two and it's gone. But this suggests that maybe there was forty days of temptation. Maybe coming back and forth. Different suggestions by the devil. Forty days of being tempted, besides what we say, what we see here. In verse two, he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, "If you're the son of God, I want to stop with that construction right there. In the Greek, it reads like it would read like this: If you're the son of God, and you are. So that's what the 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 tenses in there and the cases that are used." I mean, Satan recognizes that you are, he is the Son of God. He's not questioning, I'm not sure who you are. He knows. So it's, if you are the Son of God, and you are, tell the stone to become bread. Well, there's the temptation to Jesus, is to do something like that. Jesus gives him the answer. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So Satan proceeds. He leads him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of the time. The devil said to him, I'll give you all its domain and its glory, for it's been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you'll worship before me, it'll be yours. So Jesus is presented with the temptation, and he answers, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then his last one, he leads him up to Jerusalem, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, and says, If you are the Son of God, and you are, cast yourself down from here. For it's written, he'll give his angels charge concerning you to guard you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So now he's using scripture. Jesus answered and said, It said you shall not force a test on the Lord your God. And the devil, when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now it's obvious to you that Jesus used the word of God to fight the temptation. That's an obvious thing. But here's what I want you to consider. What Jesus didn't do. 
Jesus didn't destroy the presence of evil. He could have just made Satan perish forever, right? Snap the fingers and Satan, poof, is gone. And your temptation is gone. And the presence of evil is gone. He could have banished him temporarily. You know, Satan, leave me alone for three years. He didn't banish him temporarily. He could have gagged him. Put a sock in his mouth or something. You know, didn't gag him. He let him do the temptation. He could have quieted him like he did the raging storm. He could have cast him away like he did the demons. But I find it amazing that Jesus just leaves Satan intact, letting him work his wiles, his schemes, and his deceits without changing Satan or overruling Satan or or just morphing him into something else. Just lets him do the temptation. Because Jesus is armed with what he needs. Jesus is wise, of course. He knows what the Scriptures say. He knows if he violates the Scriptures, there are penalties. And so he just sticks with the guidelines that God has given him. Now, we would prefer that Jesus just get rid of the temptation and the evil, right? I would prefer that because then we don't have to battle. More importantly, then we don't have to fall and pay a penalty. Lord, get rid of this evil. Lord, heal everything. Lord, no more wars. Lord, take the difficult people out of my life. Jesus, change the economy. God, why can't you abolish these things that we see on TV or magazines or the music that we hear? Why doesn't just take that stuff away? Because this is not paradise. Don't yearn for paradise here because it's never going to happen. Those are not the rules of engagement with sin. That sin disappears. That evil doesn't touch us. That temptation never comes to our doorstep. That's not how it works. And that's not even how it worked with Jesus. Even He played by the rules of the earth and let the temptation run its course and rejected it. I would prefer that God just strong arm the evil that's tempting me and get rid of it. Instead, He presents us with freedom to choose the right way or to proceed and pay the penalty. It's laid out there for us. Consider this. When Jesus saw Uh, was approached by the rich young ruler. You remember that? Turn to that with me. Mark chapter 10. Let me show you how that works. Mark chapter 10. When that rich young ruler came to him, Jesus played by the rules of the earth for temptation. Because those rules don't change. The same rules that we function on. In verse 17, it says, Jesus was setting out on a journey and a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? So this guy is serious. He's kneeling. He's acknowledging that Jesus has some words of eternal life that are important. He's acknowledging that Jesus is an authority. I'm going to bow before you and ask you this question. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Now, he's about to rattle off six commandments. Of the ten commandments, seven of them deal with how we relate to one another. Okay? And Jesus is going to mention six of them. He says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Rich young man said, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Did all six. He thinks. So looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Now what did he do? Jesus pulled out the last commandment that he didn't mention. Commandment number 10, you shall not covet. 
Now he takes this one and he applies it to the man and says, go ahead, get rid of all your possessions and then come. Wow, there was his downfall. He was a coveter. He had many possessions. In fact, verse 22 says, at these words, his face fell and he went away grieved because he was one who owned much property. Kept all the commandments in his mind except the tenth one of coveting. Now at this point, the guy is sad, right? Gloomy, disappointed, emotionally distressed. And I think we'll give him credit for genuinely genuinely being disappointed in the answer and disappointed that he can't get eternal life and confused. And he starts walking away. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't call him back. Wait, wait, I see that you're sad now. That's the response I was looking for. So let me counsel you on this. He doesn't do that. Or, oh, his emotions are really low now. Now is the time I can really manipulate the emotions and get the response I'm looking for. Come back, I'll work with you. He lets them walk away. And he just watches them. He's gone. Why? Because the rules of temptation on the earth are this. You can see the evil you're coveting, repent of it, and hide yourself from that evil and come to the knowledge of good. Or you can proceed in your coveting, rich young man, and pay the penalty. He decided he wanted to proceed in his coveting and pay the penalty. And Jesus didn't try to change that. Those are the rules. In Luke 22, Jesus says a curious thing to Peter. He says to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat to test you. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now think about that. Think about the backgrounds of that. Satan has asked permission. He has asked me permission to try to test you and draw you away. So here comes Satan to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I bet you I can make Peter fall. I bet he really doesn't love you. I bet you I can trip him up. Very easily. Why don't you let me test him? We'll see what Peter's really made of. Just like when he went to God and said to Job, Oh, have you seen Job? He's righteous, but he's only righteous because you bless him. And let me, let me test Job. I'll show you what he's made of. Satan comes at some time to Jesus and asks permission to do that. And Jesus says to Satan, Okay, go ahead. He grants him permission to do this. He doesn't say, Get out of here, Satan. Leave Peter alone. You can't touch Peter. Peter's mine. Stay away from him. I've got a force field around Peter so you can't get through it. He doesn't say that. And he tells Peter, you know what? I granted Satan that permission and I'm going to pray for you that your faith doesn't fail. Whoa. These rules are too earthly. I'd rather have the get rid of Satan, please, And don't let him touch me. Jesus is saying, I'm going to let Satan come in and do the temptation. But Peter, I'm expecting you to see see the evil and turn away from it. Give me the quick fix. I want the quick fix. I want the deliverance. I want the victory without the struggle. I don't want to play by the rules. But Jesus doesn't change the rules. One more example of how Jesus gets involved. In John 6, you remember that, that Jesus is talking about a lot of very difficult things like, nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him. Wow, nobody has that ability to do that unless, unless I say so, unless the Father says so. Or, I'm the living bread who comes out of heaven. Come on. Think about the people who are hearing this stuff. You're living bread and you came out of heaven. Wait a minute. You're the carpenter's son. Joseph, Mary, you're the guy who's been teaching down here. You came out of heaven. Uh, And then Jesus says, you know what? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, 
you have no part of me. You can't have eternal life. And I was like, what? No one's ever spoke words like this before. These are hard to understand. And eventually, it says, a bunch of the disciples said, these are difficult statements, and they grumbled against Jesus, and they turned away, and they left. They didn't walk with Him anymore. They left. Jesus doesn't call them back. Wait a minute, guys, wait. Let me tone that down a little bit for you. Maybe, maybe I can explain that a little bit better so you understand it. Uh, wait, there's a whole bunch of good things about the kingdom too, really. Let, let me give you the, other, the good parts. He just lets them go. And then he turns to his disciples. And he says to them, are you going to go away too? He just throws the ball to them. What are you going to do? You're going to see evil and hide yourself? Or are you going to proceed and pay the penalty like the rest of the disciples who just left? What are you going to do? Playing by the rules. He leaves the decisions with them. And I think that we see in these models that Jesus is giving us that Jesus is not going to eliminate the evil from our lives. It's not going to happen. Stop wishing for that. That's another life. That's the future life. That's not this life. And we're living in a pretend world if we think that's going to happen. I think rather, we need to take the attitude that God told Cain when Cain did what was wrong, and made the wrong sacrifice, and Cain was sad. He says his countenance fell. And God came to him and said, Why is your countenance fallen? Why are you sad? Sin is crouching at the door. You must master it. Do something, Cain. Choose the right way. One conclusion, let me give you two choices that we need to make to stand firm and not proceed into this evil. Since Jesus has thrown you the ball and asking you, what are you going to do? Are you going to follow me or are you going to follow your temptation? He's thrown the choice to you. And you know, and I know, what sins there are that really appeal to us. And there's a lot of different ones. And we could all get up and name them. And so I want you to think about those particular sins because there's some that really press hard on us. But the ball's in your court and you have to make the right choice. And so the two things I want to talk about, because there's hundreds of things we could talk about, are first of all, that we need to start taking the Word of God seriously as our guide, as our way of escape. And secondly, not to be overconfident and think that you won't do that sin. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10 because both of those things are found as instructions for us in this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First of all, we want to talk about what is the way of escape when I'm tempted? What is the way of escape? And there are several, I'm sure, and I'm only going to talk about one. Found in verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10:13. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but will, with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. And I want to focus on just the last part of that. He will provide the way of escape so that you can endure it. Now, I like the provide the way of escape part because that sounds like I just get delivered from it and there's no... Uh, consequences and there's no battle in that. I just get to escape the temptation. But unfortunately, the verses, the words that follow that say, He'll provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Which means, aha, so there's a battle involved. So I don't just get to leave and escape the pressure. Now, you who have battled temptation, you know how strong it is. Right? When you go to war, nobody knows how strong the other side is in the battle until you actually engage in the fight. 
Or, I know we have some runners in our congregation on some teams. One thing you may hope for when you're, when you're out running is you hope there's not any rain, but that's not the worst thing. And you hope that there's not any cold, but that's not the worst thing. The thing you really hope for is that there's not any wind. Wind is a killer. And you don't know how bad the wind is until what? Until you start running against it. If you lie down, eh, the wind's no problem. You run against it. It's like, I hate this wind. It makes it so much harder. Well, that's what happens in temptation. We're able to endure it. It's because we're engaging the temptation. We're fighting it, so you're going to feel it. And that's why God says this way of escape I'm going to give you is to be able to endure it. And to do that, this is very simple. I'm a simple man. I couldn't give you anything complicated if I wanted to. Is to follow the instructions in the Word just like Jesus did. Jesus didn't pull out any divine magic or hocus-pocus. He used the same thing that we use, the Word of God. Satan tempted him with this. Jesus says, but God's guideline is this. Satan throws this one at him. Jesus says, but God said this. He throws another one at him. Jesus says, it's already written down that I'm supposed to do this. The whole guidebook for temptation is already there. You don't have to be the smartest person in the world to figure it out. You just have to take this seriously. And so, when Proverbs 10 says, when words are many, sin is not absent, take the cue and say, I better not talk too much. There's your guideline. That will save you from the sin. Don't talk too much. When 1 John 3 says, if you have this world's good and you, goods and you behold someone else in need and you don't share it with them, how does the love of God dwell in you? Well, there it is. If I have the world's goods and somebody else is in need, I share it with them. There's the guideline. That'll save you from the temptation of being hard-hearted. Just follow the guideline. In James it says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, There's your guideline. So now you won't jump to conclusions and make assumptions about somebody else, will you? Because, wait, I've got to hear what they have to say. I'm not going to speak until I've heard the whole story. And that will save you from the sin of judging somebody or making assumptions about somebody. So my very first, very simple instruction is, are you willing to take seriously the very basic guidelines that are in here about sin, and are you, will you dare to actually believe these guidelines and trust that when temptation comes, God has the remedy? Or, are you going to trust your eyes like Adam and Eve? Or, are you going to trust your heart like the rich young ruler who coveted in his heart. Or, especially for you young people, are you going to trust other people to tell you what's right and wrong contrary to the Bible? My call is for you to dare to believe the guidelines in the Scriptures and save yourself the penalty of sin. And secondly, do not be overconfident about your sin. Or your seeming ability to fight your sin. Look at the verse right before verse 13. In verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, watch out, lest you fall. Now he had just finished cataloging some of Israel's sins for which they were destroyed. If you're like me, I read through the Old Testament, sometimes I I think about Israel... What are you guys thinking? I mean, they go through the Red Sea. God parts the sea. They walk through it. He closes the sea on the Egyptian army. Incredible. What a memory that's going to be. And it's not very long until they're complaining. I'd rather be back in Egypt where we had garlic and leeks and onions. There's nothing to eat out here. And I go... 
Don't you remember the Red Sea? That's what I'm thinking. Or they'll worship idols, and then God will judge them. And then they'll say, oh, we were wrong to worship things made of stone and wood. We're coming back. And so they come back, and then they depart, and then they come back. And I go, don't you guys see? But you know, in 1 Corinthians 10 here, God is saying those things were written for us because we do the same thing. We do the same thing. And He's saying, be careful. If you think you're standing, you're going to fall flat on your face in sin if you get overconfident. You're capable of any sin. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You're capable of any sin. Because I have said in my life, when I've seen somebody do a sin, I could never do that. I'm setting myself up for a fall. You're capable of any and every sin. Sometimes we see other people sin and then we look down on them and we do this. At least I didn't do that sin. At least I didn't do that one. I worked at a place once where there's this mentality of wishing for other people to fail because then the focus is on them and it's off of you. And so when someone would fail to get an account, people would kind of whisper, did you hear so-and-so didn't get this one, they lost it to the other competitor. And there was some snickering, at least I didn't do that. And I wonder if sometimes we don't do that in the church when someone else gets caught in a sin and we say, well, at least I didn't do that. I'm not that bad. Really, you could be. Maybe you will be. Or so-and-so got the consequences of their sin. Well, that's good. They should have got the consequences to their sin. I wouldn't fall into that one. Really? Maybe you're a minute away, an hour away, a week away, a month away, and you might be in the same place. Don't think you're standing so tall. One man said, you know, when you see another brother or sister in sin, consider these two things. First, you don't know how hard he or she tried not to sin. Okay? That's a good instruction. We don't know. Maybe they battled and battled and battled and hated the flesh and did all that they could and they still fell. We don't know how hard they battled. And secondly, we don't know how hard Satan battled. Because maybe if Satan unleashes that same fury on us, boom, there we go. Maybe. Maybe. So don't be overconfident. And when you see other people's sins, don't think that you're standing while they're falling because your turn is coming. It's coming. You're always at the edge of the cliff. Every time we sin should destroy our fleshly confidence. Oh, I did it again. I can't trust myself. I'm not standing. I need Christ. I need help. I need the Word. I need the Spirit. I need prayer. Taking, availing all those means of grace because every time I sin, it should create more humility saying, I'm weak. I'm no better than anybody else. No better. So my second instruction on fighting the temptation to make sure you don't proceed to pay the penalty is don't think you're standing so strong that you can't fall. Because you can. Lastly, to those of you who have yet to come to Christ, who haven't given your heart to Christ, who have not repented, have not had faith in Christ, don't think that you're going to escape the eternal penalty. You won't. You can't. The rules are not different for you than everybody else. You have to play by the same rules that everybody plays by. Everybody. Talk about equality. This is the essence of equality. Everybody's got the same rule. You want eternal life? Repent. Believe. Call on the Lord. If you don't, you play by God's rules. He's the judge. There is an appointment. 
at the end of this world that you have to keep. And when you stand before the judge, guess who makes the rules? The judge makes the rules. Not you. You can say, well, I didn't think it would happen to me. It will happen to you. I didn't expect it. Expect it. It's going to be there. You're going to stand before God. Guaranteed. This past week in Pakistan, earthquake hit. 25,000 people in a matter of a few hours rushed into eternity. 25,000. Some of them, Christians. But probably not most of them because this is an, an, an Islamic country. They had ideas about what life would be like or what the consequences of sin and righteousness would be like. They had ideas about what their rules of their religion or their personal life would be like. They were playing by their rules. And all of a sudden, these people are eternally surprised and realize that they had been deceived all their lives. And they had followed the deception. And now, get this, Now, there was nothing they could do about it. And so, while you're on earth, those who haven't come to Christ, while you have time now, do something about that. See that there is a penalty. And why not choose life? What's better? Penalty of sin forever? Life with the God who loves you. Choose the right way. The ball has been thrown to you. It's in your court. Christ has His arms outstretched waiting for you to call upon Him. Let's pray. Lord, we know that You could catalog all our sins and display them in front of our face at any time. And we would just say, guilty. Guilty as charged. But you've made a sacrifice. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and offering your body and spilling your blood to take away our sin, to save us from sin. How then, Lord, do we still get tempted by it after getting a vision of the cross and what our sins did to you? How do we keep being tempted by it? Pray that You would work in us a seriousness. A seriousness about sin and about our temptation. Lord, keep us from being deceived. Holy Spirit, come and open our eyes and convict us of our sins. Help us to not proceed and pay the penalty. Help us to hide ourselves. We pray You would help us be sensitive to our sin because we are prone to it. And I ask that You would burn the words of your, the Scriptures into our hearts so that we would remember that You provided a way of escape and that we can endure it. But we ask for Your help. Lord, we do not stand. We are weak people. We wouldn't even pretend that we stand. I pray for Your help and for Your guidance and for Your Spirit to strengthen us in the inner person that we can resist temptation. Amen.